Hello and welcome to this episode of Bipolar Black Girl. I'm your host, Mayor Fortin. On this episode, we welcome back Dr. Christine Crawford. Dr. Crawford is a psychiatrist and uh, who focuses on bipolar disorder and psychosis. Dr. Crawford returns to further discuss bipolar disorder. Welcome back, Dr. Crawford. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me back. Thank you much for agreeing to uh, go into this with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I, um, as I was telling you a little bit of my story, I was diagnosed when I was 36 years old. Um, and I really didn't know then what bipolar disorder was. And um, I basically just was like, oh, well, this is why I act this way. Um, but I never really dug into, you know, why it exists, why I have it, you know, what does it mean to have it? How does, how does my brain function differently? You know, those kinds of things. So I was wondering if we could start with, with the basics and, um, you know, move deeper into the subject. No, I think that's a really great um, topic to start off with because bipolar is a common uh, term that you may hear people throw around during conversations whenever they're talking about someone who's experiencing fluctuations in their mood. They may say things like, oh, they're so manic or they're so bipolar because they're all over the place. And I think that actually does a disservice to people who are living with bipolar disorder and for other people to fully understand and appreciate what it actually means to live with that condition, right? Um, So that's why I welcome this question, just to clarify what it actually means to be living with bipolar disorder. So bipolar disorder is technically characterized as a mood disorder. It's an episodic condition in which people can have periods of time in which they're feeling really euphoric. They have elevated mood. They're very happy. Um, They may even have lots of ideas and be working really hard on kind of making it such that these ideas come into fruition. We often commonly see people who are experiencing a decreased need for sleep during these episodes in which they may have elevated mood, lots of ideas, going through their head really fast. They may be talking really fast too. And the other thing that we may see during manic episodes, which defines part of bipolar disorder, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, is that sometimes people may exhibit some out of character type of uh, behaviors. What I mean by that is they may notice that they're spending a lot more money on certain things. They're buying stuff that they wouldn't typically buy a lot of stuff of. They may be gambling more than they usually would. And also sometimes we see people who may be somewhat hypersexual and may be somewhat promiscuous and Um, hooking up with a ton of people because you're just feeling good. You're just feeling kind of on top of the world and that you can do almost anything. And what it is that I just described are what is referred to as manic episodes. So these clear, distinct periods of time in which you're experiencing elevated mood, decreased need for sleep. You have lots of ideas. You're engaged in lots of activity, some of which may kind of not be good for you and kind of get in the way of your relationships. And people are saying you talk really fast. But the other side of 
the bipolar disorder, is also having periods of really low mood and sadness and depression. And so for some people, they can fluctuate between episodes of feeling really sad and depressed and then having the opposite experience in which they don't need to sleep, they're on top of the world, they're feeling really good. But the last thing that I'll add about bipolar disorder that sometimes gets left out of the conversation is that when people are experiencing an episode of mania, they can also present with irritable mood and be really irritable and on edge and short and snappy with people, but also not need sleep that much, may have a lot of ideas in their head. And so that's something that's commonly overlooked or misdiagnosed as some other condition. But those are the kind of the classic features that we see in people who have bipolar disorder. That makes sense. And I, I can relate to a lot of that, um, especially the, um, the talking a lot, talking fast that my um, I think my family used to say, ask me, are you from the South? Because you talk really fast. And it was just like, I don't think that's what it is, you know, looking back. And, um, you know, there are other characteristics that I completely I identify with, um, especially when I didn't know what was going on. You know, everything is kind of in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard for people who are experiencing a manic episode to really get a good sense as to how they're doing, because your mind is kind of going really fast. You have a lot of ideas coming through your head. You may be easily distracted. And so you're going from one thing to the other thing. Um, But people can also feel quite productive and quite energized. And so it's a good feeling, right? And what tends to happen is that everyone around you is able to notice the change except for yourself, right? Because your reality is what it is you're experiencing, right? It seems like when people are in a manic episode, it's everybody else's problem, but not the person who's experiencing it. And so what, yeah, what often happens with people who I talk to who um, are coming out of a period of mania, they're hearing all these stories from their loved ones, from their friends, and they're like, really? I was talking like I had a Southern accent. I was talking really fast. Well, that's kind of unusual. That doesn't sound like me. Um, And so that's the other challenging thing about bipolar is that these are about your behaviors, your mood, and your actions, right? And they have an impact on other people. And so it's hard to know that you've exhibited these behaviors and it might have negatively impacted other people. And so it can be kind of challenging as you're kind of coming out of mania to figure out how to put the pieces back together if you did something that might have hurt someone during a manic episode. Oh, I've lost so many friends during, you know, manic episodes. And um, it's it's hard to tell someone or to, to tell, you know, to tell someone like after they've known you one way for years, now to see you in this state and it's like, it doesn't make sense to them. Uh, because I was manic, I think, for years. I don't know how long a typical um, manic uh, episode lasts, but, you know, I would be up for maybe six to eight months and then just crash for, like, two weeks, you know, and then I'd be up again. Um, and that was when I was the life of the party, and, 
and everybody wanted to hang out with me and I spent my money freely and you know and then when I got depressed it was like the opposite you know nobody wanted to hang out no matter how much money I had and uh you know it's a very lonely existence it is it is because um during periods of mania like you had like you had mentioned that when you're spending lots of money, say if you're um, hooking up with other people and kind of going outside of your relationship or you're spending many, many hours fixated on one particular activity, whether that's writing a book in a matter of a week or you know praying for 10 hours a day, um, just these activities that consume a lot of your time, it takes you away from the people who mean the most in, in your life. It's something that certainly gets in the way. And what's challenging is that for a lot of friends and family is that they need to keep in mind that these are episodes. It doesn't define who the person is, but it's important for caregivers to realize, okay, this is um, what they're experiencing right now, but it's not who they always are, or who they always will be and thinking about how to support them during that time. But during periods of depression, which immediately for a lot of people can follow a manic episode, it is like this crash that you described. You know, you go from feeling on top of the world to not very quickly. It's like a very steep drop off. And you go through periods in which you're probably sleeping a ton or you're trying to get to sleep, you want to sleep, but you just can't, <laughs> and you're tired, you can't focus, you're feeling guilty, feeling like a burden to other people, and things aren't fun. You're not able to find joy and pleasure and usual activities that you know you would find to be pleasurable. And then for some people, it can get to a point in which you're having thoughts that life is no longer worth living. And so absolutely, it can be especially during those depressive episodes, a very lonely, a very isolating period of time, and it can feel really hopeless. And so I oftentimes see people in a clinical setting who are seeking out mental health treatment on their own accord when they're in a depressive episode and they have bipolar, because that's the thing that bothers them as a person, right? Is the depressed, is the depression, right? Um, and so that's why kind of talking to uh, your primary care doctor or any sort of provider about what are treatment options to make it such that you don't have these very high highs that can get in the way of your relationships, your ability to function, and that you don't have these super low lows where you feel like you're in a really deep and dark hole that you can't get rid of or can't get out of. Right. I, I in fact, need a little mania. Um, I take a little bit of antidepressant along with my um, bipolar meds just so that because I, I have lived my life for 36 years, you know, um, just anxious, you know, and feeling manic, you know, but not having the words to describe it. I am, you know, and um, as I'm, I've just, um, as many people know, just went through like a three-year um, nervous breakdown where I, I just got off the sofa, you know, three, three to six months ago. So, um, but before the Celexa, 
I was just, I was fine, but I wasn't myself. And then with the little bit of mania, I'm, I'm fine and I'm my better me. I'm more creative. I get more done. Um, I actually find it easier to focus. I also have ADHD. So, you know, that kind of, I don't know which, you know, which is which at the time, but, um, you know, I, I need that to, to, to make me feel alive. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard when people are introduced to the idea of treatment for their bipolar disorder for this very reason, because being in a period of mania, it feels good. You're super productive. You're able to get things done. You have a lot of confidence in your abilities and your, um, you have amazing ideas. And so the idea of presenting or introducing what's called a mood stabilizer, which is a type of medication that we offer to people who have bipolar disorder, just to kind of keep things at an even level so that they don't have the super high highs and the super low lows, is that sometimes even with a mood stabilizer, they don't like where their baseline mood kind of falls. It may be too low, (laughs) like too low at a point where it's hard for them to tolerate. And so if that were to happen to you or any of your listeners where someone introduces medication to stabilize the mood and you're like, whoa, 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 I'm, I'm feeling too depressed, I'm feeling too low, that's okay. That's not an indication that you should not be on any medicines. It may be that the dose of that one particular medicine isn't for you or that medicine itself isn't a good option. There's something else. Um, so what we do is we try to dose the medication such that you still have energy, you still have great ideas, you're still feeling good, but it doesn't get in the way of your daily activities. Right. Mm-hmm. So should I talk to my doctor about playing with the the uh, the my prescriptions? So what I oftentimes do... I'm sorry, not to interrupt, but as opposed to taking the Celexa, which I know can also lead to me having, you know, a very depressive episode. Mm -hmm. And so this is where it gets really tricky with psychiatry, because there isn't um, one solution in terms of meds that works for everybody. Because what we're talking about here is about the brain and human emotions. And there's still a lot that's unknown right now about how the brain works and about our emotions and our behaviors. And so what I do with a lot of the people I work with is that I'm having ongoing conversations about them as an individual. What are their unique needs? What are the important characteristics of their life? How it is they want to function? What would be ideal um, for them in terms of their mood and behavior? And so we're kind of working together on coming up with a medication regimen that makes sense. Now, it sounds like given the fact that there was a component of feeling anxious, that's kind of been part of your experience for quite some time, being on a medicine like Celexa or citalopram, it's really helpful for that anxious feeling and to prevent periods of being depressed. But there are some people who are able to sustain good mood on citalopram, even though they have an episode of uh, mania in the past, 
But if things start to rev up where you're noticing, oh, I'm going three, four days without sleep, I still have a ton of energy, then maybe adding another medication just to bring it down a notch so that you don't kind of ramp up too much. Um, But there are other people that I see who are on a mood stabilizer and a medication like citalopram to help with anxiety, to help avoid some of the depressive symptoms. We see that. And then the other combination of medication that we see is for people who tend to experience more periods of mania, but maybe even some psychotic symptoms too, where they start to hear voices, they're seeing things, they may have some paranoid delusions, and they may be Yeah. um, So for some people being on an antipsychotic for a brief period of time, just to get them out of that episode can also be really helpful. So we can move things around. It doesn't have to be set in stone, the medication plan that you're on, because again, it's an episodic illness. But for some people being on one medicine throughout to prevent further episodes is helpful. But if you're feeling too low or too high, we can always adjust things accordingly. Great. I, I thank you for answering that. I, um, you said something about how the brain interacts with it. How does, how does the brain of a bipolar person differ from that of a neuronormative, uh, person? Mm -hmm. So this is where there's a lot of hand waving that's going on in terms of the actual neurobiology of it. But based on the way in which a lot of our medications work that help treat some of the symptoms of bipolar depression or some of the symptoms of mania, is that we know that there are several different neurotransmitters that are involved, whether that has to do with dopamine, and sometimes having too much dopamine floating around can contribute to some of the more impulsive behavior, the disorganized behavior, uh, the impulsivity. And so there are medications that help reduce the amount of dopamine that's binding to some of the receptors in your brain so that you're not having these paranoid delusions, you're not hearing voices while you're in a state of mania. And then when we see people who are depressed, we're seeing problems with serotonin which is a feel-good neurotransmitter. It helps you have a good mood, feel less depressed. Um, And also norepinephrine, which is another neurotransmitter that gives us energy, makes us motivated. And in fact, norepinephrine is what is released during your fight or flight response, where something happens and you're quick to act and move and do what you need to do. So it gets you going. But we do see some of those levels being low of norepinephrine and serotonin in people who are experiencing bipolar depression. What we also know to be true is that it can run in the family. So if you have a parent, a sibling, uh, a grandparent, maybe even an aunt or uncle who might have had previous episodes of mania or depression, or they already carry a diagnosis of depression, it does increase the likelihood that at some point in time, you may experience depression or a bipolar um, episode. And then what's also interesting is some of the data having to do with with, um, age of onset of some of the symptoms of mania or even bipolar depression. What's interesting is that for many years, it was generally thought that 
those who um, were male, assigned male at birth, were more likely to experience the onset of symptoms earlier on in life. So that could be like 18 to the mid-20s. But then when it comes to those who are female assigned at birth, that those symptoms or even the diagnosis itself tends to happen a little bit later on. So it isn't uncommon to hear about someone in their 30s who's female identifying or female at birth who has symptoms of mania and is diagnosed with um, um, manic depression or what have you. And we don't really know the explanation as to why women get it later than the men, but that is a, a pattern that we do see. And then in terms of race, across the board, like the prevalence is the same um, when it comes to, to white people, black people, Latinx individuals, um, um, Asians. But what we do see to be true, what we do see that is true is that the symptoms of depression and the symptoms are mania tend to be worse and more severe in black and brown people. Really? And is, and is there any reason for that? Has anybody figured that out? Yeah, there's a lot of speculation around, does this have to do with delays in receiving care and treatment due to stigma? Does this have to do with being misdiagnosed with having another condition? And so you're not properly treated for the right condition um, due to certain biases based on the clinician who is doing the interview. They may say, oh, you just have schizophrenia. Um, or you don't have anything wrong with you, you're fine, um, and then you're not receiving the right treatment. So what we do see is that in a variety of different psychiatric conditions, black and brown people tend to present with more severe symptoms, but a lot of it has to do with misdiagnoses, delays in receiving care or getting into care, stigma. Um, and then also the, the tricky thing is, is that a lot of the diagnoses that we have in our DSM-5 or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is the book that all mental health clinicians use to look up the diagnostic criteria for all of these psychiatric conditions, a lot of that criteria was based on studies done on white people. Right? right, And then most of the people who contributed to that book and who define what it means to have bipolar disorder or not were also majority white people. I am and, shocked. Well, think about it. You know, um, when it comes to the field of psychiatry, what's a terrible history about my field is that historically they have mistreated Black people across the entire existence of um the field of psychiatry. So going back, way back in the day, there was an actual psychiatric diagnosis that was assigned to slaves who wanted to run away and escape from working in the fields and wanted to run away from their slave masters. There's an actual diagnosis for that. There's an actual diagnosis that was used for black people who were considered to be lazy during the slave time and they weren't working as hard um, and they weren't that good. And so there was a form of treatment that was shared with all of the um, slave owners and white people that they needed to have their slaves out in the sun more often and to whip them very hard um, to help um, treat this condition. Oh and then God. as time went on and we had Freud who was really kind of leading the movement, thinking about 
um, you know, mental health, thinking about um, kind of unconscious um, thoughts that we have that may influence our mood and behavior. It was thought at the time that Black people's minds weren't sophisticated enough to experience more abstract mental health conditions like anxiety and depression. Wow. Wow. And then the last, and then the last thing I'll say is a lot of the studies on medications were performed not on Black people for the majority, you know, it was on other patient populations. Um, and so we're still right now trying to play catch up to understand why it is that maybe certain groups metabolize the medications differently or may not respond to certain med meds in the same way. And so we're really trying to look at how we can diversify our treatment options. How can we diversify our understanding or broaden our understanding of what it means to have a psychiatric condition? It's changing over time, um, but we're still kind of limited <laughs> because of, you know, a lot of this information is just based on a very limited and small demographic of people. Right. Um, excuse me. Uh, there, I mean, do, does it present differently by race or is it all, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, I feel like super high, super low. You know what I'm not even. It's it's easy. You know what I mean. So it's I don't feel like oh I'm just a little depressed or I'm feeling manic. It's like one extreme to the other. That, that I'm assuming that's not race based. That's just me. <laughs> yeah, and that's the other important thing to keep in mind when it comes to bipolar disorder is that everyone. Ex experiences is different in terms of the frequency of depressive episodes and the amount of time that you may be in a depressive state. There's a, you know, a lot of differences when it comes to how long you're in a period of mania and what mania looks like for you and how often that happens. There's a lot of variability. But the other important thing to include in this conversation is context, right? And so for some people, if there are ongoing sources of stressors, we do know that can trigger certain mood episodes, right? Stress um, really gets me. Oh God, stress makes everything in my body act up. Exactly, right? And so if people are in various stressful conditions, whether it has to do with financial issues or housing issues or being in a challenging relationship and experiencing domestic violence or what have you, that certainly does increase one's risk of kind of getting into some of these episodes that they already have a history of bipolar. And so one of the things that we talk about in treatment is that this is a condition that has a great prognosis if people can surround themselves with a good support system, right? Because there are times when you're feeling sad where you feel alone, but to know that you have people in your corner who will be by your side no matter what, no matter if you happen to say or do something while manic, no matter what, if you happen to be more socially withdrawn because you're depressed, they're always there. It makes people feel more hopeful and less alone. 
right? It does, yeah. You know? And it motivates people to be engaged in treatment. If you have friends and family who are like, yeah, I'm down for you being in therapy. I go to my own therapy too. Or, oh, that's wonderful. No problem. You got to take time to go get your medication. Let me go back home with you and we can go pick up your medication together. And so if people are in support of your treatment, it makes it easier to speak openly about what it is you're going through. Like you don't feel like you have to hide the fact that you got to take a medicine at nighttime and that maybe it would be hard to wake up the next morning. You know, sometimes if you're feeling super groggy in the morning, you know, just things like that. Um, so the social support is very helpful. Absolutely. My husband has been my rock from the day I was, um, I entered treatment uh, until today, we've been together 15 years and that's how long I've been suffering. Um, is you say that late in life diagnoses for women is, um, is common. Mm -hmm. And so what pushes, you know, what pushes a woman? I feel like I was bipolar all my life. Like receiving the diagnosis just explains my my history of aggravation and violence and, um, you know, crying myself to sleep every night and periods of like feeling super confident and I can conquer the world. You know, all of these things literally since I was two, you know, so at 36, yeah, I was able to figure out what it was or why I acted that way. Does it get worse over time is my question, you know, seeing, seeing as there's, you know, a later in life diagnosis for women? I think that's a really great question. And I think that what oftentimes happens, and it may seem as though I'm making some broad generalizations, but oftentimes when people are receiving a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and they're in a, in a manic episode, it's oftentimes because they landed in the emergency room. That's me. Or they did something that landed them in the hospital, right? And so I think the level of impulsivity or kind of the types of behavior that may be exhibited by men may be more obvious and apparent and more aggressive and more problematic that that's why they're brought into the hospital, right? It's just one thought, one theory, not based by science, but it's just based on like, I wonder about this kind of pattern, right? Um, And so there are a lot of um, women who have these fluctuations in their mood and they're still taking care of their family. They're still going to work. They're still kind of doing the things that they need to do, but it's harder. Um, And then maybe there's some event, some significant stressor that really challenges the woman's capacity to be able to to function. And then they land in the hospital, right? Um, So it could be this mental breakdown that happens, this really big stressor where it's like, You've been able to shoulder so much for so long, but your body can only withstand so much, right? That's how I felt. I felt kind of like I cracked. You know, I just couldn't, it just, nothing made sense anymore. And 
you know, my boyfriend was worried about me, obviously, you know, my mom, who I think, who immediately was like, what drugs is she on? Thanks, mom. Um, but it was, you know, and when I actually received my diagnosis, it said it was either a marijuana overdose, right, or um, or bipolar disorder. <laughs> it's like, those are miles apart. <laughs> miles apart. And that's the other confusing thing, too. And it's a great point to introduce this conversation is that. There are people who can experience symptoms of mania and it can look like a bipolar disorder um, diagnosis, but it may be due to the fact that maybe they smoked the wrong kind of weed that particular day. Or it could have been that they wanted to study for an exam, so they decided to take their friend's Adderall. And then that also kind of caused some mania um, and some psychosis. So we actually do see- or meth. Exactly. exactly. Meth's another one. <laughs> the most bipolar drug. <laughs> Let me tell you, it really is. Yeah. And you know, a lot more people are having access, getting access to, to meth. But but that's true. But what's challenging is that um, we can't always make the assumption that if we see someone who's experiencing these fluctuations in their mood, then therefore they must be on drugs. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, because that's not true for everyone. Right. And I think that it makes it hard for people to want to go seek out treatment, to go get help, because they don't want people to just assume that this is their fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's important to know that, yeah, there are some substances that can induce a state of mania, but also this is a biological condition that can just happen in people with no clear explanation. Right. Because mm-hmm. the other times that I was manic, it had absolutely nothing to do with weed. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, I, but I understand they're dogs. Yeah. 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 And it's hard. And, and so that's why we try when someone comes in in a manic episode or feeling depressed, we do our medical workup too. Because there are some medical conditions that people can have, you know, such as problems with their thyroid or some um, uh, other, especially when it comes to hyperthyroidism and you have an overactive thyroid and your body's releasing too much thyroid, you can have a ton of energy. You can feel antsy. You can feel easily distracted. And so every patient that I see for the first time, I'm checking their thyroid level. I'm checking their complete blood cell count because having anemia and having a low blood cell count can make people feel really depressed. I'm anemic. Anemia is a thing. And it can make people feel very tired, fatigued, feeling sad. Yeah. Um, The other thing that people don't realize is vitamin D deficiency can have a profound impact on your mood. I'm vitamin D. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, you know, vitamin D levels should be in the 30s, for example. But I see people who are coming into my clinic who are complaining about depression or other mood symptoms, and their vitamin D level is like 5 or 10. And then it's amazing. I tell them to start taking some over-the-counter vitamin D3. They come back a month later and they're feeling better. It's 
it actually works. And so um, it's so important to talk to a provider about this because there may be something medically going on that's kind of contributing to the picture. And you don't want to overlook that because that will make the whole situation worse. And there's a quick fix for that. Right. Yeah. um, It wasn't because of my psych, but my general practitioner put me on iron as well as of vitamin D, you know, and I, I don't go out in the sun very often. So I'm trying to make that like a part of my routine. Cause I know that, you know, the sun is a good source of vitamin D. Right. And I know that earlier I was talking about medication as a form of treatment when someone's experiencing episodes of either mania or depression, they have bipolar disorder, but therapy is another important form of treatment. But I don't want to kind of, uh, I want to also emphasize the importance of moving your body, movement, getting outside, um, going for walks. The people who I see who are more physically active tend to have fewer um, kind of severe episodes, right? Mm -hmm. There's something we know that there are a lot of different hormones and chemicals that are released when you are moving your body. And so especially when you're feeling depressed and you're like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to move. But then when we encourage people to do what we refer to as behavioral activation, where it's like you have the thought, I don't want to do it, but no matter what, you force yourself to get up. And by virtue of moving and doing something, you'll feel good and therefore feel even more inclined to do more. It's just kind of the activation energy is the hardest part. But once you get going and the wheels start rolling, you're like, oh, okay, I can keep this moving. This isn't that bad, right? But that activation. But what what is the reason I can't get off the sofa? Is it bipolar disorder or ADHD? Like, I just don't, I I think about it all the time and it Mm -hmm. sounds fun and I know the benefits, Mm -hmm. but I just can't do it. So it could be a couple of things. Number one, if I'm thinking more about it being related to ADHD, um, some of the symptoms that we see in ADHD is not only hyperactivity, which is the H piece in the ADHD, but we also see distractibility. And so you may have a lot of really great ideas um, and you maybe you have one idea to do this and then a few minutes later you have another idea to do that. And it can kind of be hard to keep up with what you were planning to do in a given day. You may be going in a completely different direction. Um, And then also there's impulsivity too, where it's like, as soon as you have a thought that pops in your head, you're like, oh, I got to do this thing. And so maybe that thing will be, I got to go on my phone and check out like my Instagram and my direct messages and all of that. And forget about your plans to go to the gym. I'm the most impulsive person that you'll probably ever meet. Like, I just, I'm way better than I used to be, but like, just anything, say anything, do anything, just impulsive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if I'm thinking that it's depression, that's more about you're feeling really tired. You're feeling Mm -hmm. like physically it's impossible for you to move your body off of that couch. Also with depression, people have what's referred to as psychomotor slowing, where your thinking slows down and your body movement also slows down. And so you're tired, 
you don't have the energy to get up and you are just slowed in your movements, right? And then also if you're experiencing lack of interest and pleasure and motivation, it's going to be hard to get you excited about even the idea of getting off of the couch and going to the gym. So it's hard. It it definitely is hard. And it's, um, I think it's getting, I know, you know, once I do start moving, I am, I'm off to the races. Like Mm -hmm. you would think that I'm training, you know, for something, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I guess, well, here's my question. The last few days I've been super unmotivated Mm -hmm. and, um, I never, I mean, is it, can you be depressed or sad without it turning into a full-blown depressive episode? That's a really great question because feeling sad is a typical human emotion and a typical experience in response to what's happening in life. And sometimes it could just happen for no reason. But when we're thinking about like a major depressive episode is when you have a two week period of time in which you're not sleeping well, you've lost interest in your activities, you're feeling guilty, feeling like a burden, hopeless, low energy, can't focus and concentrate. You've also noticed changes in your appetite, you're not interested in eating, then maybe you even have thoughts of hurting yourself. If that's going on for two weeks, then that is an actual depressive episode. But if you're feeling sad and unmotivated, and those are the only two things that you're experiencing, yeah, it's profoundly distressing and it doesn't feel good, but it actually, by definition, doesn't meet criteria for a major depressive episode. It just sucks, right? right? But if it is getting in the way, and this is the big thing with a lot of the psychiatric conditions, is that if it's getting in the way of your ability to function, then by definition is a problem. So if you're feeling sad, you can't get out of bed, and you're not going to work, you're not having conversations with your partner, um, you're letting the bills pile up, you're not doing I anything. Just avoid everything. Yeah. You know, one of the classic things that we talk about with depression is um, kind of going to a depressed person's kitchen and you see like the pile of dishes there and they just keep stacking up and stacking up. And then what ends up happening for that person who's depressed, it's like it's depressing to see that pile of dishes there. (laughs) You're feeling worse about the fact that you can't get it done. You don't have the energy to get it done. Um, and so it's kind of the snowball effect too. It's like you're avoiding certain things, but then other things just pile up and then you feel bad about that. And so that's the tricky thing about depression. Right. Yeah. I used to, um, keep my bedroom like way messy. Like the rest of my house would be clean, but my bedroom was just out of control and I would say, I would tell people like, that's representative of what's in my brain. That's my home, you know? And people can, now that I'm feeling better, it's like, let's put the weight, put away my clothes. Let's get stuff off the floor. Let's, you know what I mean? But like that depression, just like, it just consumes you. It just consumes you. It's hard to do the little things and the little things feel like, 
you're trying to pick up like a 200 pound weight and to put it on your shoulders. Like it feels impossible. And the other thing that is important to talk about when we're talking about depression and low mood is I often ask people, how much energy does it take for you to get up and go and to function in the world the way that you are? Because there are some people, and we see this with some celebrities when we hear about them dying by suicide and we're all surprised that they had a history of depression. Mm -hmm. How could this high functioning person be depressed? Like they appear to be fine. But the main question is, how much effort and energy did it take each and every day for that person to function? Right. And, and sometimes it's too much. And you're like, I can't function anymore. Um, so it's really important to not just look at people being like, they look fine, that their living room looks great. <laughs> but right. then you don't bring them into the bedroom, right? It's right. kind of, sometimes it can be, sometimes you can hide um, kind of the extent of a depressive episode from other people. Oh, I've um, had it for years, mm-hmm. years. Yeah. yeah. Um, my my entire adolescence, I cried myself to sleep every single night to the point that I was like, you know, do other girls do this? You know, like, is this just a part of life? And, you know, but too afraid to like talk to anybody about it, mm-hmm. you know, or... I didn't want to see my guests different. I didn't want to, I didn't want anything to be wrong with me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, but now, you know, I'm damn near 51 and it's, for me, it's like, a, um, it's almost like a badge of honor because I do feel like bipolar disorder gives me an advantage in certain areas, mm-hmm. you know, it's just that the bad parts are just the really bad parts. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to, to mention is that having a diagnosis of bipolar disorder doesn't put you in a box in terms of what all the possibilities and what your full potential can actually be. It's a condition that you're, you're living with and people are able to live meaningful lives with this condition. And what's also empowering is that it's more knowledge and information about how to manage your your mood and behavior so that you can um, do all the things you need to do. But without that information about what your emotional state is like, it's kind of like you're operating in the dark. But now, you know, you're like, okay, I'm starting to feel a little bit elevated. I have a little bit of um, more energy and feeling kind of manic. All right. So this is the time where I'm going to complete these assignments, right? right? There's just this heightened awareness about how your brain works, how your mood works, what your specific triggers are. And I think that's truly empowering because there's a lot of 51 year olds who know nothing about their mental health. They know that's- nothing about it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I appreciate that you view it as a superpower. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. I have two last questions for you. Mm-hmm. Does bipolar get worse with age? And then the second question is, what is your, can you tell me the general expected, uh, the life expectancy for a person who has bipolar? Yeah, I think as people get older and they start to kind of go into their more mature um, 
years, we tend to see fewer episodes of mania and more episodes of depression. That's not necessarily everyone's course, but we do see more um, bouts of depression a little bit later on in life. And in terms of life expectancy, um, you know, what we have seen is that with some of the medications that people take um, to help with their um, manic episodes, such as antipsychotics, some of those antipsychotics can have really bad long-term side effects, such that people can have high cholesterol, they can have high blood sugar that may predispose them to diabetes. And so there are some secondary causes of having a mental health condition that could potentially lead to a shorter life expectancy, but it's more about being at increased risk for cardiovascular disease or for diabetes that we tend to see in some people, just given the types of meds that they're on. And then also for people who are experiencing profound depression or when they're manic and they're maybe consuming a lot of alcohol or using a lot of different substances, um, you know, they may not have as healthy of a lifestyle in general. And so that's another factor. And then the last thing I'll say is, um, when folks are feeling depressed and you're more sedentary, you're not working out, you're not becoming physically active, we do know that limited physical activity also um, can um, be correlated with some negative outcomes when it comes to longevity and those sort of things. So I know that I didn't provide like a clear cut answer, um, but what we do know to be true is that there are more risk associated with having an untreated psychiatric condition, then there are benefits, right? There's more harm than good going on untreated for a depressive episode. More harm can be caused by going untreated for a period of mania. Um, because sometimes when people are manic, they do things that later on they regret and they engage in risk-taking behavior. And so you may do something that you don't intend to like, be harmful to yourself or others, but things happen. Um, and so do the accidents. So many, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. What was that? And, and you know, people can have accidents and what have you due to the impulsive behavior. Yeah. Right. Yes, I can see that because my driving when I'm feeling impulsive is not the best. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. I know I said two final questions, but I had one more, and this is kind of a uh, why or everybody that I know who is bipolar smokes cigarettes. Why is that? It's a wonderful, wonderful question. This is one of those questions where it's like a chicken versus the egg sort of question. Um, and so I know that there may be some listeners who may be more up to date on the current research literature around this, but what we do know to be true is that there are some individuals who smoke cigarettes, and when they smoke cigarettes, it helps reduce some of the distress and the sense of anxiety that they may experience during a period of mania. Okay. So it actually is helpful in terms of mitigating some of the symptoms that they're experiencing. But then what we also know to be true is that cigarette smoking can interfere with your ability medication's ability 
to work properly. Oh, I did not know that. Yes. Yeah. So it actually interferes with some key enzymes that help with proper metabolism or the proper breakdown of the medicine. And so people who smoke actually require higher doses of psychiatric medication. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so because of that, they may have ongoing or residual symptoms because they're not at an adequate dose of the medication because it's smoking. So they actually need higher doses in order to have less of, you know, have less severe symptoms. And so we do know that to, to be true. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, some of the, the data around it, but any psychiatric hospital, especially back in the day, they would always have smoke breaks because all oh, of the patients- Oh, one at UCLA. <laughs> we <Yeah>. have. <laughs> yeah. so there's definitely a link between, you know, bipolar disorder, psychotic disorders, and smoking. But also, we see this uh, link that has to do with the effectiveness of the medications to treat it, and they're less effective if you're smoking. All you smokers, stop it now. Please do. I love that PSA. <laughs> I love that public service announcement. Yes. Straight to the point. <laughs> yes. Well, Dr. Crawford, thank you so much for joining us again. I feel like we really learned a lot on this episode, and um, I love talking to you. You are one of my favorite guests. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I love what you're doing with this podcast, because I think more people should be informed about various mental health conditions, because if they're recognizing some of these signs and symptoms, then at least they know and feel empowered to go get the help that they need, or to share this information with their loved ones. So thank you. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. Dr. Crawford, thank you again for helping us gain a little more understanding into what living with bipolar disorder can look like. Before doing the research for this episode, I knew very little about why I am who I am. I hope that by continuing these conversations, we can become both student and teacher. Talking about it destigmatizes us. Thank you to all. And don't forget to hit subscribe.